0: Chapter 4 of Syria, the Desert and the Sown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tad Davis in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. Syria, the Desert and the Sown by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 4. There is an Arabic proverb which says, Neither ash-gray snake nor midday guest. We were careful not to make a breach in our manners by outstaying our welcome, and our camp was up before the sun. To wake in that desert dawn was like waking in the heart of an opal. The mists lifting their heads out of the hollows, the dews floating in ghostly wreaths from the black tents, were shot through first with the faint glories of the eastern sky and then with the strong yellow rays of the risen sun. I sent a silver and purple kerchief to Ul Isa for the little son who had played solemnly about the hearth, took grateful leave of Namrud, drank a parting cup of coffee, and the old sheikh, holding my stirrup, mounted and rode away with Goblan. We climbed the Jebel al-Aliyah and crossed the wide summit of the range. The landscape was akin to that of our own English border country, but bigger. The sweeping curves more generous, the distances further away. The glorious cold air intoxicated every sense and set the blood throbbing. To my mind, the saying about the Bay of Naples should run differently. See the desert on a fine morning and die, if you can. Even the stolid mules felt the breath of it and raced across the spongy ground. Mad, the accursed ones! till their packs swung round and brought them down, and twice we stopped to head them off and reload. The little heart, the highest peak of the Jebel Druze, surveyed us cheerfully the while, glittering in its snow mantle far away to the north. At the foot of the northern slopes of the Alia Hills, we entered a great rolling plain like that which we had left to the south. We passed many of those mysterious rujum, which start the fancy speculating on the past history of the land, and presently we caught sight of the scattered encampments of the Khasanaya, who are good friends to the Daja and belong to the same group of tribes. And here we spied two riders coming across the plain, and Gablon went out to meet them and remained some time in talk, and then returned with a grave face. The day before, the very day before, while we had been journeying peaceful from Tnib, four hundred horsemen of the Sukkur and the Hawaitat, Leagued in evil, had swept these plains, surprised an outlying group of the Beni Hassan, and carried off the tents, together with two thousand head of cattle. It was almost a pity, I thought, that we had come a day too late, but Gablon looked graver still at the suggestion, and said that he would have been forced to join in the fray. Yes, he would even have left me, though I had been committed to his charge, for the Dajah were bound to help the Beni Hassan against the succor. And perhaps yesterday's work would be enough to break the newborn truce between that powerful tribe and the allies of the Hanaza and set the whole desert at war again. There was sorrow in the tents of the children of Hassan. We saw a man weeping by the tent pole with his head bowed in his hands, everything he possessed having been swept from him. As we rode, we talked much of Gazu raid and the rules that govern it. The fortunes of the Arab are as varied as those of a gambler on the stock exchange. One day he is the richest man in the desert, and the next morning he may not have a single camel foal to his name. He lives in a state of war, and even if the surest pledges have been exchanged with the neighboring tribes, there is no certainty that a band of raiders from hundreds of miles away will not descend on his camp in the night. As a tribe unknown to Syria, the Beni Awaja fell two years ago on the land southeast of Aleppo, crossing 300 miles of desert, Marduf, two on a camel, from their seat above Baghdad, carrying off all the cattle and killing scores of people. How many thousand years this state of things has lasted, those who shall read the earliest records of the inner desert will tell us, for it goes back to the first of them. But in all the centuries the Arab has bought no wisdom from experience. He is never safe, and yet he behaves as though security were his daily bread. He pitches his feeble little camps ten or fifteen tents together over a wide stretch of undefended and indefensible country. He is too far from his fellows to call in their aid, too far as a rule to gather the horsemen together and follow after the raiders, whose retreat must be sufficiently slow, burdened with the captured flocks, to guarantee success to a swift pursuit. Having lost all his worldly goods, he goes about the desert and makes his plaint. And one man gives him a strip or two of goat's hair cloth, another a coffee pot, a third presents him with a camel, and a fourth with a few sheep, till he has a roof to cover him and enough animals to keep his family from hunger. There are good customs among the Arabs, as Namrud said, so he bides his time for months, perhaps for years till at length opportunity ripens and the horsemen of his tribe with their allies ride forth and recapture all the flocks that had been carried off and more besides, and the feud enters on another phase. The truth is that the Gazu is the only industry the desert knows and the only game. As an industry, it seems to the commercial mind to be based on a false conception of the laws of supply and demand, but as a game, there is much to be said for it. The spirit of adventure finds full scope in it. You can picture the excitement of the night ride across the plain, the rush of the mares in the attack, the glorious and comparatively innocuous popping of rifles, and the exhilaration of knowing yourself a fine fellow as you turn homewards with the spoil. It is the best sort of fantasia, as they say in the desert, with a spice of danger behind it. Not that the danger is alarmingly great, A considerable amount of amusement can be got without much bloodshed, and the raiding Arab is seldom bent on killing. He never lifts his hand against women and children, and if here and there a man falls, it is almost by accident, since who can be sure of the ultimate destination of a rifle bullet once it is embarked on its lawless course? This is the Arab view of the Gazoo. The Druzes look at it otherwise. For them, it is Red War." they do not play the game as it should be played. They go out to slay, and they spare no one. While they have a grain of powder in their flasks and strength to pull the trigger, they kill every man, woman, and child that they encounter. Knowing the independence of Arab women and the freedom with which marriages are contracted between different tribes of equal birth, I saw many romantic possibilities of mingled love and hatred between the Montagues and the Capulets. Lo, on a sudden I loved her, says Antara, though I had slain her kin. Goblin replied that these difficult situations did indeed occur, and ended sometimes in a tragedy, but if the lovers would be content to wait, some compromise could be arrived at, or they might be able to marry during one of the brief but oft-recurring intervals of truce. The real danger begins when blood feud is started within the tribe itself, and a man having murdered one of his own people is cast out a homeless kinless exile to shelter with strangers or with foes such was imr ul kais the lonely outlaw crying to the night "O long night wilt thou not bring the dawn yet the day is no better than thou a few miles further north the Hassaniya encampments had not yet heard of yesterday's misfortune and we had the pleasure of spreading the ill news goblin rode up to every group we passed and delivered his mind of its burden the men in Buckram multiplied as we went, and perhaps I had been wrong in accepting the four hundred of the original statement, for they had had plenty of time to breed during the twenty-four hours that had elapsed between their departure and our arrival. All the tents were occupied with preparations not for war, but for feasting. On the morrow fell the great feast of the Mohammedan year, the Feast of sacrifice, when the pilgrims in Mecca slaughter their offerings, and true believers at home follow their example. By every tent there was a huge pile of thorns wherewith to roast the camel or sheep next day, and the shirts of the tribe were spread out to dry in the sun after washing, which I have reason to believe takes place but once a year. Towards sunset we reached a big encampment of the Beni Hassan, where Goblin decided to spend the night. There was water in a muddy pool near at hand, and a good sight for our tents above the hollow in which the Arabs lay. None of the great sheikhs were camped there, and mindful of Namrud's warnings, I refused all invitations and spent the evening at home, watching the sunset and the kindling of the cooking fires and the blue smoke that floated away into the twilight. The sacrificial camel, in gorgeous trappings, grazed among my mules, and after dark the festival was heralded by a prolonged letting off of rifles. Goblin sat silent by the campfire, his thoughts busy with the merrymakings that were on foot at home. It went sorely against the grain that he should be absent on such a day. How many horsemen, said he, will alight tomorrow at my father's tent, and I shall not be there to welcome them, or to wish a good feast day to my little son. We were off before the rejoicings had begun. I had no desire to assist at the last moments of the camel, and moreover we had a long day before us through country that was not particularly safe. As far as my caravan was concerned, the risk was small. I had a letter in my pocket from ul Isa to Nasib al-Atrash, the Sheikh of Salkhad in the Jebel Druze. To the renowned and honored Sheikh Nasib al-Atrash, Iran, I had heard my host dictate it to Namrud and seen him seal it with his seal. The venerated, may God prolong his existence. We send you greetings to you and to all the people of Salkhad and to your brother Jadhallah and to the son of your uncle, Muhammad al-Atrash, in Um -er Um-er-Roman, and to our friends in in And further, there goes to you from us, a lady of the most noble among the English. And we greet Muhammadah and our friends, uh, etc. Here followed another list of names. And this is all that is needful, and peace be with you. And beyond this letter, I had the guarantee of my nationality, for the Druzes have not yet forgotten our interference on their behalf in 1860. Moreover, I was acquainted with several of the sheikhs of the Torshan, to which powerful family Nasib belonged. But Gablon was in a different case, and he was fully conscious of the ambiguity of his position. In spite of his uncle's visit to the mountain, he was not at all certain how the Druzes would receive him. He was leaving the last outposts of his allies and entering a borderland by tradition hostile. He himself had no acquaintance with it but that which he had gathered on raiding expeditions, and if he did not find enemies among the Druzes, he might well fall in with a scouring party of the bitter foes of the Dajah, the Hassanah or their like, who camp east of the hills. After an hour or two of travel, the character of the country changed completely. The soft soil of the desert came to an end, and the volcanic rocks of the Horan began. We rode for some time up a gully of lava, left the last of the Hassaniya tents in a little open space between some mounds, and found ourselves on the edge of a plain that stretched to the foot of the Jebel Druze in an unbroken expanse, completely deserted, almost devoid of vegetation, and strewn with black volcanic stones. It has been said that the borders of the desert are like a rocky shore on which the sailor who navigates deep waters with success may yet be wrecked, when he attempts to bring his ship to port. This was the landing which we had to effect. Somewhere between us and the hills were the ruins of Um-Edj Jamal, where I hoped to get into touch with the Druzes, but for the life of us we could not tell where they lay, the plain having just sufficient rise and fall to hide them. Now, Um-Edj Jamal has an evil name. I believe mine was the second European camp that had ever been pitched in it, the first having been that of a party of American archaeologists who left a fortnight before I arrived, and Goblin's evident anxiety enhanced its sinister reputation. Twice he turned to me and asked whether it were necessary to camp there. I answered that he had undertaken to guide me to Um Ej Jamal, and that there was no question but that I should go, and the second time I backed my obstinacy by pointing out that we must have water that night for the animals, and that there was little chance of finding it except in the cisterns of the ruined village. Thereupon I had out my map, and after trying to guess what point on the blank white paper we must have reached, I turned my caravan a little to the west towards a low rise from whence we should probably catch sight of our destination. Gamlan took the decision in good part and expressed regret that he could not be of better service in directing us. He had been once in his life to Um Umm Jamal, but it was a dead of night when he was out raiding. He and his party had stopped for half an hour to water their horses and had passed on eastward, returning by another route. Yes, it had been a successful raid, praise be to God, and one of the first in which he had engaged. Mikhail listened with indifference to our deliberations. The muleteers were not consulted, but as we set off again, Habib tucked his revolver more handily into his belt. We rode on. I was engaged in looking for the Rasif the paved Roman road that runs from kalat as Zarqa straight to Basra, and also in wondering what I should do to protect, if necessary, the friend and guide whose pleasant companionship had enlivened our hours of travel, and who should certainly come to no harm while he was with us. As we drew nearer to the rising ground, we observed that it was crowned with sheepfolds, and presently we could see men gathering their flocks together and driving them behind the black walls, their hurried movements betraying their alarm. We noticed also some figures, whether mounted or on foot, it was impossible to determine, advancing on us from a hollow to the left, and after a moment, two puffs of smoke rose in front of them, and we heard the crack of rifles. Goblon turned to me with a quick gesture. Darabuna, he said, they have fired on us. I said aloud, they are afraid, but to myself, we're in for it. Goblon rose in his stirrups, dragged his fur-lined cloak from his shoulders, wound it round his left arm, and waved it above his head, and very slowly he and I paced forward together. Another couple of shots were fired, and still we rode forward, Goblon, waving his flag of truce. The firing ceased. It was nothing, after all, but the accepted greeting to strangers, conducted with the customary levity of the barbarian. Our assailants turned out to be two Arabs— grinning from ear to ear, quite ready to fraternize with us as soon as they had decided that we were not bent on sheep-stealing, and most willing to direct us to Um Umm Ej-Jamal. As soon as we had rounded the tell, we saw it in front of us, its black towers and walls, standing so boldly out of the desert that it was impossible to believe it had been ruined and deserted for thirteen hundred years. It was not till we came close that the rents and gashes in the Tufa masonry— and the breaches in the city wall were visible. I pushed forward and would have ridden straight into the heart of the town, but Goblon caught me up and laid his hand upon my bridle. I go first, he said. O lady, you were committed to my charge. And since he was the only person who incurred any risk and was well aware of the fact, his resolution did him credit. We clattered over the ruined wall, passed round the square monastery tower, which is the chief feature of the mother of camels, such as the meaning of the Arabic name, and rode into an open place between empty streets, and there was no one to fear, and no sign of life save that offered by two small black tents, the inhabitants of which greeted us with enthusiasm, and proceeded to sell us milk and eggs in the most amicable fashion. The Arabs, who live at the foot of Haran mountains, are called the Jebeliah the Arabs of the hills, and they are of no consideration, being but servants and shepherds to the Druzes. In the winter they herd the flocks that are sent down into the plain, and in the summer they are allowed to occupy the uncultivated slopes with their own cattle. I spent the hour of daylight that remained in examining the wonderful Nabataean necropolis outside the walls. Monsieur Dussault, began the work on it five years ago. Mr. Butler and Dr. Littman, whose visit immediately preceded mine, will be found to have continued it when their next volumes are given to the world. Having seen what tombs they had uncovered, and noted several mounds that must conceal others, I sent away my companions, and wandered in the dusk through the ruined streets of the town, into great rooms, and up broken stairs, till Goblon came, and called me in, saying that if a man saw something in a fur coat exploring these uncanny places after dark, he might easily take the apparition for a ghoul and shoot at it. Moreover, he wished to ask me whether he might not return to tneeb One of the Arabs would guide us next day to the first Druze village, and Goblon would as soon come no nearer to the mountain. I agreed readily, indeed, it was a relief not to have his safety on my conscience. He received three Napoleons for his trouble and a warm letter of thanks to deliver to Fela-ul-Isa, and we parted with many assurances that if God willed, we would travel together again. The stony foot of the Jebel Haran is strewn with villages deserted since the Mohammedan invasion in the 7th century. I visited two that lay not far from my path, Shaba and Shabhiya, and found them to be both of the same character as Um-Edj-Jamal, from afar, they look like well-built towns with square towers rising above streets of three-storied houses. Where the walls have fallen, they lie as they fell, and no hand has troubled to clear away the ruins. Monsieur de Vogüé was the first to describe the architecture of the Haran. His splendid volumes are still the principal source of information. The dwelling houses are built round a court in which there is usually an outer stair leading to the upper story. There is no wood used in their construction, even the doors are of solid stone, turning on stone hinges, and the windows of stone slabs pierced with open-work patterns. Sometimes there are traces of a colonnaded portico, or the walls are broken by a double window, the arches of which are supported by a small column and a rough plain capital. Frequently, the lintels of the doors are adorned with a cross or a Christian monogram, but otherwise there is little decoration. The chambers are roofed with stone slabs resting on the back of transverse arches. So far as can be said with any certainty, Nabataean inscriptions and tombs are the oldest monuments that have been discovered in the district. They are followed by many important remains of pagan Rome, but the really flourishing period seems to have been the Christian. After the Mohammedan invasion, which put an end to the prosperity of the Haran uplands, few of the villages were re-inhabited, and when the Druzes came about 150 years ago, they found no settled population. They made the mountain their own, rebuilt and thereby destroyed the ancient towns, and extended their lordship over the plains to the south, though they have not established themselves in the villages of that debatable land, which remains a happy hunting ground for the archaeologist. The American expedition will make good use of the immense amount of material that exists there, and knowing that the work had been done by better hands than mine, I rolled up the measuring tape and folded the foot rule, but I could not so far overcome a natural instinct as to cease from copying inscriptions, and the one or two, they were extremely few, that had escaped Dr. Littman's vigilant eye and come by chance to me, were made over to him when we met in Damascus. To our new guide, Fendi, fell the congenial task of posting me up in the gossip of the mountain. Death had been busy among the great family of the Torshan during the past five years. Faiz al-Atrash, Sheikh of Kraya, was gone. Poison, said some, and a week or two before my arrival, the most renowned of all the leaders of the Druzes, Shibli Beg al-Atrash, had died of a mysterious and lingering illness. Poison again, it was whispered. There was this war and that on hand, a terrible raid of the Arabs, of the Wadi Sirhan to be avenged, and a score with the Sukkur to be settled, but on the whole there was prosperity and as much peace as a Druze would wish to enjoy. The conversation was interrupted by a little shooting at rabbits lying asleep in the sun, not a gentlemanly sport perhaps, but one that helped to fill and to diversify the pot. After a time, I left the mules and Fendi to go their own way, and taking Mikhail with me, made a long circuit to visit the ruined towns. We were just finishing lunch under a broken wall, well separated from the rest of the party, when we saw two horsemen approaching us across the plain. We swept up the remains of the lunch and mounted hastily, feeling that any greeting they might accord us was better met in the saddle. They stopped in front of us and gave us the salute, Following it with an abrupt question as to where we were going, I answered to Salkad to Nasib al atrash and they let us pass without further remark. They were not Druzes, for they did not wear the Druze turban, but Christians from Creah, where there is a large Christian community, riding down to Um Ed Jamal to visit the winter quarters of their flocks. So said Fendi, whom they had passed a mile ahead. Several hours before we reached the present limits of cultivation. We saw the signs of ancient agriculture in the shape of long parallel lines of stones heaped aside from earth that had once been fruitful. They looked like the ridge and furrow of a gigantic meadow, and like the ridge and furrow they are almost indelible, the mark of labor that must have ceased with the Arab invasion. At the foot of the first spur of the hills, Tel Ashir, is called after the gray-white Shia plant, which is the best pasturage for sheep, we left the unharvested desert and entered the region of plowed fields. We left, too, the long clean levels of the open wilderness and were caught fetlock deep in the mud of a Syrian road. It led us up the hill to Um er Ruman, the mother of pomegranates, on the edge of the lowest plateau of the Jebel Druze, as bleak a little muddy spot as you could hope to see. I stopped at the entrance of the village and asked a group of Druzes where I should find a camping ground, and they directed me to an extremely dirty place below the cemetery, saying there was no other where I should not spoil the crops or the grass, though the crops, heaven save the mark, were as yet below ground, and the grass consisted of a few brown spears half covered with melting snow. I could not entertain the idea of pitching tents so near the graveyard, and demanded to be directed to the house of Muhammad al-Atrash, Sheikh of Um Er rahman This prince of the Tershan was seated upon his roof, engaged in directing certain agricultural operations that were being carried forward in the slough below. Long years had made him shapeless of figure, and the effect was enhanced by the innumerable garments in which the winter cold had forced him to wrap his fat old body. I came as near as the mud would allow, and shouted, Peace be upon you, old sheikh! And upon you, peace, he bawled in answer. Where in your village is there a dry spot for a camp? The sheikh conferred at the top of his voice with his henchmen in the mud and finally replied that he did not know by God. While I was wondering where to turn, a druze stepped forward and announced that he could show me a place outside the town, and the sheikh, much relieved by the shifting of responsibility, gave me a loud injunction to go in peace and resumed his occupations. My guide was a young man with the clear-cut features and the sharp, intelligent expression of his race. He was endowed, too, like all his kin, with a lively curiosity, and as he hopped from side to side of the road to avoid the pools of mud and slush, he had from me all my story, whence I came and whither I was going, who were my friends in the Jebel Drews, and what my father's name, very different this from the custom of the Arabs, with whom it is an essential point of good breeding never to demand more than the stranger sees fit to impart. In Attabari's history, there is a fine tale of a man who sought refuge with an Arab sheikh. He stayed on, and the sheikh died, and his son, who ruled in his stead, advanced in years, and at length the grandson of the original host came to his father and said, Who is the man who dwells with us? and the father answered my son and my father's time he came and my father grew old and died and he stayed on under my protection and i too have grown old but in all these years we have never asked him why he sought us nor what is his name neither do thou ask yet i rejoice to find myself once more among the trenchant wits and the searching coal blackened eyes of the mountain where every question calls for a quick retort or a brisk parry and when my interlocutor grew too inquisitive, I had only to answer, Listen, O you, I am not thou, but your excellency. And he laughed and understood and took the rebuke to heart. There are many inscriptions in Umm er roman a few Nabataean and the rest Kufic, proving that the town on the shelf of the hills was an early settlement and that it was one of those the Arabs reoccupied for a time after the invasion. A delighted crowd of little boys followed me from house to house, tumbling over one another in their eagerness to point out a written stone built into a body, or laid in the flooring about the hearth. In one house a woman caught me by the arm and implored me to heal her husband. The man was lying in a dark corner of the windowless room, with his face wrapped in filthy bandages, and when these had been removed a horrible wound was revealed, the track of a bullet that had passed through the cheek and shattered the jaw. I could do nothing but give him an antiseptic and adjure the woman to wash the wound and keep the wrappings clean and, above all, not to let him drink the medicine, though I felt it would make small odds which way he used it. Death had him so surely by the heel. This was the first of the long roll of sufferers, that must pass before the eyes and catch despairingly at the sympathies of every traveler in wild places. Men and women afflicted with ulcers and terrible sores, with fevers and rheumatisms, children crippled from their birth, the blind and the old, there are none who do not hope that the unmeasured wisdom of the West may find them a remedy. You stand aghast at the depths of human misery and at your own helplessness. The path of archaeology led me at last to the sheikh's door, and I went in to pay him an official visit. He was most hospitably inclined now that the business of the day was over. We sat together in the makkad, the audience room, a dark and dirty sort of outhouse with an iron stove in the center of it, and discussed the Japanese war and desert gazus and other topics of the day, while Selman, the sheikh's son, a charming boy of 16, made us coffee. Muhammad is brother-in-law to Shibli and to Yahya Beg al-Atrash, who had been my first host five years before when I had escaped to his village of Hara from the Turkish mudir at Basra. And Selman is the only son of his father's old age and the only descendant of the famous Hara house of the Turshan, for Shibli died and Yahya lives childless. The boy walked back with me to my camp, stepping lightly through the mud, a gay and eager figure, touched with the air of distinction that befits one who comes of noble stock. He had had no schooling, though there was a big druze Maktab at Crea, fifteen miles away, kept by a Christian of some learning. My father holds me so precious, he explained, that he will not let me leave his side. O Selman, I began. O God, he returned, using the ejaculation customary to one addressed by name. The minds of the Druzes are like fine steel, but what is steel until it is beaten into a sword blade? Selman answered, My uncle Shibli could neither read nor write. I said, The times are changed. The house of the Turshan will need trained wits if it would lead the mountain as it did before. But that headship is a thing of the past. Shibli is dead and Yahya childless. Mohammed is old and Selman undeveloped. Faiz has left four sons, but they are of no repute. Nasib is cunning, but very ignorant. There is Mustafa at Emtain, who passes for a worthy man of little intelligence, and Hamoud at Sweda, who is distinguished mainly for his wealth. The ablest man among the Druzes is, without doubt, Abu Talal of Shaba, and the most enlightened Sheikh, Muhammad and Nassar. The night was bitterly cold. My thermometer had been broken so that the exact temperature could not be registered. But every morning until we reached Damascus, the water in the cup by my bedside was a solid piece of ice. And one night a little tumbling stream outside the camp was frozen hard and silent. The animals and the muleteers were usually housed in a khan, while the frost lasted. Mohammed the Druze, who had returned to his original name and faith, disappeared the moment camp was pitched, and spent the night enjoying the hospitality of his relations. For, said Mikhail sarcastically, every man who can give him a meal he reckons to be the son of his uncle. I was obliged to delay my start next morning in order to profit by the Sheikh's invitation to breakfast at a very elastic nine o'clock, two hours after sunrise, was what was said, and who knows exactly when it may suit that luminary to appear. It was a pleasant party. We discussed the war in Yemen, in all its bearings, theoretically, for I was the only person who had any news, and mine was derived from a weekly times, a month old. And then Mohammed questioned me as to why Europeans looked for inscriptions. But I think I know, he added, it is that they may restore the land to the lords of it. I assured him that the latest descendants of the former owners of the Haran had been dead a thousand years, and he listened politely and changed the subject with the baffled air of one who cannot get a true answer. The young man who had shown us our camping ground rode with us to Salkhad, saying he had business there and might as well have company by the way. His name was Shalah. He was of a clerkly family, a reader and a scribe. I was so tactless as to ask him whether he were Achil initiated. The Druzes are divided into the initiated and the uninitiated, but the line of demarcation does not follow that of social preeminence, since most of the Torshan are uninitiated. He gave me a sharp look and replied, What do you think? I saw my error and dropped the subject. But Salah was not one to let slip any opportunity of gaining information. He questioned me acutely on our customs down to the laws of marriage and divorce. He was vastly entertained at the English rule that the father should pay a man for marrying his daughter, so he interpreted the habit of giving her a marriage portion, and we laughed together over the absurdity of the arrangement. He was anxious to know Western views as to the creation of the world and the origin of matter, and I obliged him with certain heterodox opinions on which he seized with far greater lucidity than that with which they were offered." We passed an agreeable morning in spite of the mud and boulders of the road. At the edge of the snow wreaths, a little purple crocus had made haste to bloom and a starry white garlic. The mountain is very rich in spring flowers. The views to the south over the great plain we had crossed were enchanting. To the north, the hills rose in unbroken slopes of snow. Kuleb, the little heart, looking quite alpine with its frosty summit half-veiled in mist. Two hours after noon, we reach Salkad, the first goal of our journey. End of chapter 4. Recording by Tad Davis.